Shell mounds have been obliterated by this culture, obliterated beginning with uh, the Spanish contact and then the Mexico Rancho period, and then uh, the annihilation, you know, the continued occupation of the United States government. And, um, and it's just another way of wiping us out. These are cemeteries with upwards of 400, 500 or more individuals buried within these mounds um, over millennia. Uh, and they also tell the story of the perseverance of Native communities. It can serve as an educational opportunity to teach people about what happened in the deep past and then the brilliance of the Ohlone people. So there's history to be told. Not everybody knows about it. I think that people resisted by holding ceremonial ways in secret so that we could find them again, so we could find our ways back home. Our shell mounds are our burial sites. They were created for over thousands of years of burying our ancestors under soil and stone and shell, and eventually they grew, like the Emeryville one, over three stories high. The stakes of protecting these sites are even more important for tribes that have been dispossessed of lands through colonization and invisibilized in dominant society. Welcome to Challenging Colonialism, a podcast dedicated to amplifying the voices of Indigenous California. An important note from the start, the producers are two white male educator academics, and these are not our stories. This podcast will center Native voices, and our intention is to highlight the significant work being done by Indigenous communities to challenge ongoing colonialism and to broadcast information about the resistance and resilience of Indigenous California in the past, the present, and the future. A final note before we begin, this podcast may contain graphic descriptions of slavery, genocide, and sexual violence. Welcome to Episode 2, The Matter of Shell Mounds, Preserving Sacred Sites. Um, Open Toish, I'm Sim Schneider. I'm a citizen of the Federated Indians of Great and Rancheria, and I'm an, assi- uh, excuse me, I'm a, an assistant professor of anthropology at uh, UC Santa Cruz. From an archaeological point of view, um, in my work, I understand shell mounds as you know uh, sites with incredible time depth. They're, these are sites that have um, you know upwards of 5,000, 6,000 years of history layered within them. Uh, And these layers, these sediments, um, include oftentimes uh, faunal remains, um, so animal bone, uh, shell, so hence the name shell mound. There's a lot of uh, shell in there. Plant remains, so charred material, so charcoal, burned seeds, uh, all of the the materials, the byproducts from past meals. Uh, There's also a lot of uh, technology, buried tools, projectile points and ground stone tools, uh, mortars and pestles, things like that, beads, uh, everything from uh, the daily life of past native communities is represented in these shell mound sites. As that material is piled up over tens, hundreds, thousands of years, uh, they form large mounds. Uh, some of them reached you know, 40, 50 feet in height um, you know, some of the larger ones like the Emeryville Shell Mound, you know, stretched over the, an area the size of a modern day football field. Good day. My name is Karina Gould. I am the spokesperson and tribal chair for the Confederated Villages of Lashan. 
I am right here from the East Bay. My ancestors have been here since the beginning of time. So we started doing this campaign because no one knows about shell mounds in the Bay Area. Ohlone people are taught about in fourth grade. You know, most California Indian people are taught about in fourth grade. And then you're not talked about anymore. You're erased from history. You're taught about like you're in the past. And then what I call a, a white paper genocide, you're not talking about ever again. And so it allows America to have this amnesia that you are not there anymore. So it's okay to do whatever they want to this land. So the education of shell mounds has really grown because nobody before we started doing that work knew what shell mounds were. It had been a process of 20 years of doing that work. Our shell mounds are our burial sites. They were created for over thousands of years of burying our ancestors under soil and stone and shell and, um, and eventually they grew like the Emeryville one over three stories high. Our, our shell mounds are our spiritual points where our ceremonies come together around particular things. Um, the one that I'm, f I'm working on right now, the West Berkeley shell mound, was the first, the original village site and shell mound of our people. It's aligned with our cosmology. That shell mound aligns with what is now called Alcatraz Island. Alcatraz Island was not an island that our people went to. Our belief is that Alcatraz is a place where our spirits went and rested for four days while we had ceremony on this on the land. And on the, on the evening of the fourth day, as the sun is setting, we believe their spirits go out through our western gate, which is where the Golden Gate Bridge is. So our places have these stories there. It's part of our cosmology. And so shell mounts have been obliterated by this culture obliterated beginning with uh, the Spanish contact and then the Mexico Rancho period and then uh, the annihilation, you know, the continued occupation of the United States government. And, um, and it's just another way of wiping us out. My name is Abel Gomez and I'm currently an Andrew W. Mellon postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Native American Studies at the University of Oklahoma. My research focuses on indigenous religions, political movements, and cultural revitalization, with a particular focus on Ohlone tribal communities. I was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area, but my family is originally from Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Mexico. Indigenous ceremonial practices are often deeply rooted in particular places. In California, and in the San Francisco Bay specifically, Many of the historic places of California Indians have been destroyed through ongoing colonization. As a result, the destruction of these sites is not just cultural violence, but in a substantial way, a kind of cosmological violence against indigenous peoples, especially tribes who are already landless. On the other hand, the work to collectively protect these places offers the potential for profound cultural healing and vibrant indigenous futures. Archeologists and other scholars are interested in the analysis of these shell mounds and certainly tribes are also invested in accurate interpretation. But I've noticed that tribes are much more concerned with actual relationship to these sites, accessing them, protecting them, ensuring that further or future generations have access to them over the last several decades, the shell mounds have also had a really important role in building 
community relationships across many different kinds of communities. I'm thinking here of the Shell Mound Peace Walks that were organized by Karina Gould and Janelle LaRose as part of Indian people organizing for change. Hundreds of people took part in these walks. And these walks on, on one hand brought people together, but they also brought a visibility to these places and to California Indian people. This continued in 2011 with the spiritual occupation of Segorite in what is now Vallejo, California, and the regular protests at the Bay Street Mall, uh, which is located on top of the largest shell mound, the Emeryville Shell Mound. My name's Mark Hilkema. I am the supervisor of the Cultural Resources Program in the Santa Cruz District for California State Parks. We've used the word shell mound as kind of a catch-all phrase, and we do that a lot in our culture, right? Because when the early settlements were going on and we began to destroy these mounded spaces, the thing that became most apparent was the volumes of shell. Early scholars viewed these as midden sites or places of refuse, almost built by accident. But more recent scholarship has looked at the ways these were intentionally created as burial grounds, as ceremonial centers, and perhaps as seasonal mounded villages. Among the human burials are sometimes animal remains, such as the California condor, which also suggest the ceremonial importance of these sites. Sure, daily meals um, might contribute to the idea that these are, um, you know, middens, that they have sort of that connotation of, uh, you know, this functional purpose, that this is where people dump their trash. Um, but I think we also have to remember in that same sentence that we take, we, we dump our trash in our kitchens too. We might deposit it in a different place. People are building their lives and communities at these places. They're constructing homes. They're uh, burying their loved ones. As I mentioned, you know, there are uh, individuals buried in these sites. There's uh, oftentimes larger cemeteries. These are cemeteries with upwards of 400, 500 or more individuals buried within these mounds um, over millennia. Uh, my name's Perry Matlock. Uh, I, I consider myself just a, a, a volunteer, not a representative nor a spokesperson. I just am uh, an activist advocating for Ohlone sovereignty, Ohlone independence, preservation of their ancient monuments and funerary places. And the language which was used to describe shell mounds is also very disparaging. So th this refers to the archeological nomenclature that anything anywhere in the world which just looks like waste is a midden. And we don't like to use that word midden. So if you look in a good dictionary, what is a midden? It'll tell you what it is. It's a dunghill. It's a pile of poop. Uh, so there are many facets of these sites, you know, um, and shell mound uh, or midden doesn't begin to do justice to that history. My name is Janella LaRose, and I come from the Shoshone Bannock Ute Carrizo tribes. Uh, I'm the co-founder and co-director, uh, co along with Karina Gould, uh, the Segorete Land Trust. When the sacred becomes property and real estate, it changes everything. So you don't have to have a feeling about it, you know, and you don't have to have any sacredness attached to it. To me, that's the real problem, <laughs> the real problem, and that nothing belongs to us as indigenous people, you know.
we're getting our instructions, we're getting messages from our ancestors who are buried there. And I'm not I'm not from this tribe, I'm not a Loni. What I'm just saying is that I feel like it's a duty to protect those sites. Just we'll look at okay, for example, just like uh cemeteries that are so well taken care of, massive cemeteries they have in Coleman South San Francisco, they wouldn't dare. They wouldn't dare tear that apart and put a shopping mall on top of it, you know. But I think it's about what kinds of lives are have worth. Uh, well, I'm Stephanie Manning, and I'm a, a, a Native supporter. I'm not a Native person myself. And um, moved to West Berkeley in 1975, where... Uh, my family and I got very active in trying to save the neighborhood. I started doing some research and I found that um, the Colosseum in Rome and many of the old Roman ruins are surrounded by high-rise buildings, freeways, all kinds of stuff, stores, shops, just, and there in the middle is the Colosseum and then there's other places, the Forum of Rome and all these, and those are preserved, they're considered important. Well, in my mind, West Berkeley Shellmound is more important than the Colosseum. It's like two or 3,000 years older than the Colosseum, 3,000 years older, because the Roman Empire didn't come in until 700 BC. The battlefield at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, they decided to honor these guys. They would make a national cemetery and they moved all the burials out and put him in the National Cemetery. And guess what? The battlefield remained a sacred site. They didn't put shopping malls, boulevards, housing of apartment complexes, stores, nothing. You've heard from Karina Gould, Sim Schneider, Abel Gomez, Mark Hokema, Perry Matlock, Stephanie Manning, and Janella LaRose. Up next, Dr. Sim Schneider and Mark Hilkema explain in detail how much we have to learn from these shell mounds. As an archaeologist and, you know, even as a member of a Native community in California, you know, we, we owe quite a bit to Nels Nelson. In 1907, um, he uh, designed a project that was just uh, really fundamentally uh, trying to understand what was here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, so in 1907, he starts a, a, a pedestrian survey, basically, and he walks uh, much of the, the intertidal zone around San Francisco Bay, uh, and he visits these sites and he records them systematically, starting in San Rafael and basically working his way clockwise around the bay. And he records upwards of 425 of these uh, sites you know, from my perspective, in terms of telling the, the history and, uh, of my culture and, and community of Great Rancheria, even in 1907, uh, those sites had already been uh, impacted in many different ways. A lot of them had been, as I mentioned, impacted by natural damage. Uh, some of the more um, uh, grotesque examples of um, uh, impacts to these sites include like uh, just excavating these sites for the fun of it. Uh, curio collecting was uh, rampant. Um, people were digging these sites to collect uh, artifacts for their own curio cabinets. Uh, people were excavating these sites to collect Native American bones. 
And that has an impact in, uh, in terms of uh, the 21st century when we're trying to, to make sense of these sites chronologically. Uh, so it's difficult when you have pages of the history book ripped away from it. And what I found in a lot of my work too is that a lot of the sites in Marin County um, had been uh, repurposed. Uh, so shell mounds being excavated for road base uh, so Sir Francis Drake Boulevard in Marin County, which basically bisects the peninsula. Uh, a lot of the sections of that road probably have shell mound at, at its base. Um, and the, the construction crews would probably consist of uh, inmates from San Quentin Prison uh, that were uh, tasked with excavating local shell mounds and bringing and carting that shell over to the um, uh, the route of the Sir Francis Drake Boulevard and other roads in Marin County. And another popular thing uh, throughout the San Francisco Bay is a lot of these sites were just leveled uh, and repurposed as fertilizer, you know, for orchards. Many of these shell mounds are still there. The footprints of them, you know, are still, um, uh, you know, there on the landscape. Uh, they might not be visible in the sense that they're uh, built over or buried over. Any of the archaeological work that's done in the San Francisco Bay Area, particularly along the, the, the shoreline, whether it's a highway or um, you know, construction for a new housing development or what have you, it's probably going to cut into uh, an archaeological site and probably a shell mound. I think it's important to keep in mind uh, that if you have a site and the, the top of that site is missing, um, you're missing part of the history of that place. Uh, so if you have, uh, say, a site that was excavated in, the, the, in Santa Clara, you know, and that was used as California guano, as it was called, fertilizer for farms in the area. Um, if you have a site that was excavated um, uh, intensively, um, there might be pieces of the history that are gone. So, uh, so consequently, the, the pattern is that we just don't view shell mounds as places of historical significance for indigenous peoples in California. People were creative in the ways that they navigated uh, missions. And sure, they might have gone to a mission, but uh, many of my ancestors and uh, you know others in uh, California, um, <clears throat> you know, have ancestors that fled missions and returned to shell mounds and other sites that were still relevant and had value to those communities that were being uprooted by colonialism. Uh, and they also tell the story of the perseverance of Native communities into the you know, 19th and 20th century and into the present day. Before the gold mining, the hydraulic mining of the gold rush silted up San Francisco Bay, you had deeper estuaries and inlets that supported populations of shellfish and a mosaic, a spider web of tidal marsh with pickle weeds um, that at the edge where it meets the higher ground, you had dense willow thickets too. So it's a very walled in kind of circle around the bay. Um, but they become great nesting grounds for immense flocks of migratory birds, ducks and geese and such, and seabirds. And when we read historic accounts about that, they, it's just hard to believe, you know, the density of the animal base here in the bay, or was. You've got sea lions and you've got whales in the bay. There's all the shellfish, the mussels, the clams, the horn snails and all of that. And then you have the species we don't see in the archaeological sites, like all the soft, you know, the gooey ducks and the, 
uh, boring worms. These things look kind of hideous to me, but were delightful you know, to the diet of the day. Um, and those don't preserve in the archaeological record at all, but they're part of the mudflat habitat. You've got leopard sharks that breed in these estuaries too, that become a food base as well. The migratory salmon that have to, you know, gather in these mudflats until the winter rains break through the sandbars and they migrate upstream. Another big food base for the people. You have sea otters in such density that the accounts tell us that they hauled out on the creek banks in places like Palo Alto, Mountain View, and Sunnyvale. Hard to imagine now. In other words, the Bay Area was a deeply ecologically diverse habitat with different ecosystems and rings around the bay as you moved up in elevation. And it also, uh, and, and thereby, supported some of the greatest populations of the Americas. You know, I've been reading Spanish diaries for a long time of the explorers, missionaries, and settlers, and they frequently talk about seeing tule balsa, but they call them balsas. And the tules, of course, are buoyant. And so those can be gathered and bundled and dried and, and bind them together to make boats. So the Spaniards talk quite a bit about seeing these boats, and they remark about their agility and um, design and say these are very crafty vessels. They're very impressed by them. When you're at the water's edge and all you see are Thule marshes and the mountains rising in the background behind them, it's hard to get a navigational fix. Well, 425 mounds all around the bay is a lot of ports, in my opinion. What I found was that all of these mounds were where tidal reach could get to them. Even the Castro Mound, which is miles inland, was along Stevens Creek, a very deep channel in its day, which had tidal flow. So you could put your boat in, let the tide suck you out into the bay. If you build a platform, like a mound, you have a launch facility. And one of the things about the Stege Mounds that turned me interesting is they were full of fish heads. Lots of fish heads. Well, where's the rest? Well, what we realize is the fishermen there were selling their catch elsewhere. We find a lot of obsidian from Napa Valley, Clear Lake, Canocti. Those are all north of San Francisco Bay. And yet, throughout the San Francisco Peninsula and South Bay, we find Napa Valley obsidian. How's that getting there? It's not swimming. The only way it can come across is with boats. And so when you start looking at the economic possibilities, they're manifest in the trade. We can see that the people had commodities markets. Uh, even Angel Island, you know, which is separated from the land on all sides, had big mounds on it. And they reflect the economics of Bay Area traffic and exchange. And then we think, well, you know, you need coin for that, right? You got to have money to create a market economy. And so people were dismissive for years of that. Well, that was staring us in the face too. The Olivella shell bead market goes back 9,000 years. Some of the oldest dates we have on shell beads are on Olivella beads. The olive snail has no dietary value at all. It's one function as a symbol of wealth. And we found, and I worked on a project where we found uh, Olivella shell in a hearth, along with rabbit bones, um, five meters below the surface in South San Jose. That's almost 20 feet below the surface. That's deep. 
And we dated that, and they came out 9,200 years old. That's the end of the Ice Age. And so you think about shells as coin, and you find them from 9,200 years ago right into the missions of the 1840s. That's the oldest coinage on the planet that I can think of. We clearly have not expressed the prehistory of the Bay Area in these terms, you know. So there's a bigger story that needs to come out. My name's Karina Gould. This guy named Nels Nelson, I believe, put down the, that map for that specific reason as well about our shell mound so we could find those connection points again. So around 1998, 1999, my friend Janelle and La and I created this organization called Indian People Organizing for Change. And it was really about the base closures that were happening in the Bay Area. The Army base closed, the Naval Station closed in Alameda, and really trying to do uh, community organizing work in the Bay Area. Um, and we did door-to-door -door knocking, and then we created house meetings and Native people that have been transplanted here through forced relocation programs um, into the Bay Area. We began to come together and to really do work around issues that have, were of concern to Native people that were not being addressed by the social service agencies that were here. It was also around the time what we call the dot-com era, you know, when the internet really blew up and then there was like huge amounts of money that was made by people in the Bay Area. And we talk about gentrification today. Well, there was a big wave of gentrification then. You know, I always say that, you know, California Indians and, you know, Ohlone's are the first wave of gentrification that got kicked out of here before anybody else. At that same time, the um, Emeryville Shell Mound um, was being destroyed for a third time, I say, right? And the, the Emeryville Shell Mound was the largest of the 425 shell mounds on Nels Nelson's 1909 map. And so we began to do this work about shell mounds. How do we do this education? Janella went on a ground zero walk um, in New York and walked with um, June San, who is a Nippon Mihoji Buddhist monk. And she knew Jun San from 1978. Jun San came and lived at the American Indian Movement house in Oakland. And she met Janella when she was young and was first had her children. And they lived in that house together. And since that time, Jun San was given land in New York in Seneca Nation uh, to create her own temple there. Uh, she worked with uh, Native people. She worked with Native people. And this is important because the Nimpon Mohoji Buddhist sect it walks around the world in prayer um, in order to stop nuclear proliferation, right? And they walk with the native people because their Fuji Guruji in 1978 said that they needed to work with the American Indian people on this land because the uranium that was taken off of native land was, was, was used to create the bombs that killed people in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in order for that never to happen again, the Japanese people and the American Indian people needed to work together. Well, Janella was back east on this walk. She had a talk with Junsan, and they were talking about the shell mounds and what to do. And then she came back with this idea. And she said, we should do a walk to the shell mounds because nobody knows what they are. And we could do this education. 
And then I was naive and I said, yes, right? I didn't know what a walk was. So in three weeks, we worked with a couple of uh, allies who had been doing work around shell mound protection in West Berkeley and San Bruno and um, put together Nels Nelson's map and a map from today and figured out where these places were and created a walk. And people that were here from all over the world that was on that walk in uh, back east stayed and came to California. So we had people from Japan and Australia, um, the Cape Verde Islands, uh, Nova Scotia, and then people from all over the United States that joined us on that first walk. And we started at Segorite um, on the Carquina Strait where my ancestors was their last stronghold um, before being taken into uh, the mission. We started there where there were two shell mounds and we walked down to San Jose and we walked up to San Francisco, walking 18 miles a day, stopping at shell mounds along the way and offering prayers. And uh, we did that for four years. This specific walk was a walk that our ancestors' footprints did, going to or from these missions, these places of enslavement, these places of great pain for all of us. And you take on this, uh, the spiritual pain of our ancestors when you do that. But like I said, it's exhausting to walk for miles and miles a day. I remember when we did our first walk for the Shell Mounds and we walked 18 miles a day for three weeks, right? But by the third day of doing that walk, I wanted to crawl up in a ball and cry, you know, and not get out of bed. The more we started to read and we looked at, um, Perry showed us Nels Nelson's uh, map, and I was um, talking to Karina, and I said, I think we should visit all of these shell mounds and say a prayer, lay some tobacco down, maybe get some direction or figure out what we were going to do. We decided we would do it um, during the Thanksgiving time when people are on vacation, you know. We started with a prayer, you know, we just prayed and just said, <clears throat> you know, ask for guidance, and, and, uh, and it just was just so beautiful and we had um, the Buddhist uh, folks with us and then we had our Indian folks you know and so what we decided was we would have flaggers someone in the front and then we would have our um, our banner about the walk and then we would have a native person holding the or someone holding the eagle staff which uh, wounded knee Dio Campo took care of said that and then we would have we would have the drum and then we'd have the Buddhist people behind us and after that, and then everybody else would walk behind them, that procession. And it stayed that way every single day. We did that every day. The way we're learning to live right now, you know, to manage ourselves, is it's not just like we're just flailing around out here, but really we, we need to bury our dead in a, in a good way because then we can hear the message that they're giving us. We need direction every day, but we don't get it every day in this in this life that we're living. So we're looking to the ancestors for direction and instruction. And, and then to honor that, we have to make sure that we're taking care of the burial sites, right? People knowing about the 425 shell mounds in the Bay Area, which we have, you know, now thousands of people know about it because of us walking, you know. Myself, I feel like you need to know where you live. And I think it's important to know your history, you know, and I think it's important to know. And I think people are generally curious about where they're at. 
but some people just you like you don't know where to start you know do some research about where you live even as someone born and raised in the bay area i would say alone in other california indian communities were for the most part relegated to the past i think this has changed quite a bit in the communities i'm a part of now and a big part of that is because of the grassroots movements in the Bay Area around protecting Bay Area shell mound. The work to collectively protect these places offers the potential for profound cultural healing and vibrant indigenous futures. The Emeryville shell mound was, as I said, 60 feet high. It was bulldozed. We actually have pictures of steam shovels digging it away with people standing around watching it. So it was taken out and written off as destroyed and gone forever. And then a paint factory was built over it. And a paint factory, you can imagine factories of the day, large corrugated metal and brick buildings and steam pipes going up. There was a paint factory on top of the Emeryville Shell Mountain, Sherwin-Williams. The toxic waste from the shell, the paint factory penetrated into the Shell Mound ruin, which was under the paint factory. And it had so immersed with the the bones that it made them elastic. So it was gone, you know, forever. Well, was it? Um, That factory was destroyed and the city of Emeryville wanted to build a shopping mall. And so they began excavating, demolishing the building. And oh my God, a huge circular archeological site became immediately apparent for all the shell. Well, it's the base of the mound people did not realize that the weights of these mounds were so monumental that they actually embedded and sunk into the surrounding bay margin. So lo and behold, suddenly they found this ginormous ring, concentric ring of a shell mound, because the top is gone, it's leveled at the base. Everybody was wearing Tyvek suits because it was a toxic waste site. What happens to the artifacts now? They were trucked out and dumped because they're toxic, and toxic waste supersedes any cultural resource laws. I learned about the Shell Mounds in 1997-98. You know, it was already done, really. It was already a done deal. You know, I worked with Karina to try and save Emeryville Shell Mound because they were still having public hearings about it, but they had already really decided in the smoke-filled back rooms that they were going to build this Shell Mound, I mean, this shopping mall. So one of the arguments we had in Emeryville was that every effort they made to mitigate their destruction of their most valuable cultural resource fell far short of the importance of the mound. Uh, Just uh, the Emeryville did not appreciate what it had. So it was required that they mitigate it by sequel law. And their mitigation is this little mound they have in front of the (laughs) shopping mall, which we climb all over. Uh, on Black Friday every year and do our demonstration. They had to drive piles into that alluvial fill to hold up the foundation of the shopping mall. And in in the pilings were hundreds of burials still there. We still have a lot of anger about um, that dead mall. We call it the dead mall. I went to a public hearing and just addressed the city council and said, oh, you know, you really should save the shell mound. And when I sat down, the city attorney said to me on the microphone, Ms. Manning, we never intended to save the shell mound. (laughs) I was like, well, that's the truth, isn't it? 
so the plaque is a little disingenuous. If you go into Alameda, you'll find a park. It's called Lincoln Park. There's a rock in the lawn. On that rock is a little flat piece of metal, a plaque. It mentions there was a shell mound, and it was a huge shell mound. It's described as the Sather Mound. It tells you so many hundreds of bodies were removed. That plaque does not make up for the loss of that ancient monument, that wonder of the world. I'm in my 43rd year of working for Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association, and I'm certainly in favor of plaques on buildings, you know, so that people know that this building has history. But as far as historic site, especially Indian historic sites that have special spiritual significance, I think it's much better to save a site than to plaque a site. We had um, Ohlone people, not just Lashan people, but Ohlone people from Mutsin and from other territories that came um, to speak out against this being built there. And the city council just unilaterally just said, well, we're gonna do it anyway. Um, and so we showed up there during, um, during the biggest shopping day of the year for 20 years now, uh, the day after Thanksgiving on the corner of Shell Mound Street and Ohlone Way. We show up at this little model mound that's supposed to represent thousands of years of my ancestors uh, being there. And we protest with hundreds of people of all walks of life, holding up signs, giving out information, telling people where they're shopping is a burial site. People really are, no matter who they are, they're interested in where they come from and they're interested in where they live, but there's nobody there to tell them. We just said we're going to go every Thanksgiving and we'll be here. And uh, well, when we started the walk, we ended up at uh, the Emeryville, in Emeryville, in front of the mall. So that kind of became where we would meet for the, I think we're at 25 years now or something like that. I can't remember how many years we've been there. Everybody just kept coming and coming, and it just got bigger and bigger and bigger. At one point, uh, you know, we would leaflet everything, leaflet the cars at the, uh, at the Ikea, leaflet, uh, and they would, security, <coughs> security would chase us out of the mall and all of that kind of stuff. And then they would say, we want you to go back, or we want you to take all the flyers off the cars. And we're like, oh, okay, sure. <laughs> You know, <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll do it. <laughs> of course, we didn't do it. <laughs> and uh, and they, we had a lot of times when the cops would come. And they actually, one year, maybe a two, a couple of years in a row, they were very, very aggressive with uh, the cop, you know, the policemen on the horses and everything. Uh, we've taken over the street, taken over the intersection, and and you know, we just leave it and just tell folks at the mall, you know, this is this is a burial site, and people are very, you know, they're like shocked. They're like, what what are you talking about? People can't come in and thought of the just the greatest strategies. We had one time people uh, did chalk outlines of the bodies in the mall, you know, which was really really sharp. And then uh, and then we would close down that whole intersection right in front of the Marriott. I think it's the Marriott. It's a different hotel now. We know for a fact that they did take the ancestors and put them in garbage bags at Emeryville and take them to the dump. We know that. You know, people, workers, union workers told us that. To, to demonstrate the ugliness of, of this, I, I want to read something from the Mill Valley, The Early Years by Banny Spitz, 1997. Tommy Bickerstaff, who moved to Mill Valley as a youth in 1906, recalls in his oral history, we used to go down and dig up the skeletons 
down at Solomon's Shell Mound towards La Goma and Lock Lane. We used to dig around. We'd find a leg bone and then a head. We knew it was Indians, but that didn't mean anything to a kid. We'd put these skulls up on a post and shoot them with a 22. We used to find arrowheads too. We're pausing here to emphasize this point. At Emeryville, white Californians leveled perhaps the largest known shell mound and put a dance hall in a saloon with a racetrack and a shooting range on it. The historical record shows that elsewhere, people dug up graves and shot the skulls for target practice, for amusement. This is recent California history. I say recent because Shell Mound Park operated in Emeryville for maybe 50 years, from the 1870s well into the 20th century, when Nels Nelson was urging the preservation of the mounds as early as 1905. This is recent history compared to the thousands of years of history contained in these sites. And it is relevant history, as Karina Gould says, that describes this landscape within the context of systemic racism. In the interest of providing a timestamp for that context, this episode is being recorded in October of 2021, shortly after a California Supreme Court decision sustaining a lower court ruling in favor of a landowner who has been trying to build on the West Berkeley Shell Mound. More about that now with Stephanie Manning, Perry Matlock, Janella LaRose, Karina Gould, and Toby McLeod. A group came to my attention and I was told by a lady from Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association that my duty was to do research, historic research on the houses in order to produce landmark applications and save them that, that way. But I had a neighbor who was a, um, who was a um, archeology span student. And he said, you know, Spenger's parking lot in that area there used to be a shell mound called West Berkeley Shell Mound. And he gave me his book, here it is, which was a, an archaeo. This is an archaeo report from 1975 about the digs they did in 1950 and 1954. And I knew through my work with Berkeley Architectural Heritage Association that I needed to fill out lots of forms, like a landmark application for the, to go before Landmarks Preservation Commission. And uh, I did lots of research and compiled it in this landmark application and at first the city just rolled their eyes at that they said this is not a building i said that's right it's not a building you know it's it's a sacred site and so anyway i uh, i kept reapplying because they would reject my application they said you have to have a location so so i put in uh hearst to university and fourth street to the to the bay I think, yeah, something like that. And that's just ridiculous because the shell mound preceded streets by thousands of years. And so um, I, I really should have had it juxtaposition to Strawberry Creek. Everybody came out and spoke in favor of the landmarks application, landmark designation, and it passed. And then it was appealed. <laughs> the whole thing started when a developer proposed a five-story condominium on the what is known as the Spengers parking lot across from the fish restaurant there. Uh, it turned out it's a 5,000-year Ohlone village site that has been protected by two acres of asphalt for all these years. 
My name is Toby McLeod. I founded the Sacred Land Film Project, which is part of Earth Island Institute. And for 30 or 40 years, I've been making films about the environment that involve indigenous people. I found myself out there showing films and encouraging people to work with local communities to protect sacred places under the leadership of indigenous people. And when I came home to Berkeley after finishing all those films, I found that the West Berkeley Shell Mound was a sacred site in my hometown, threatened by a condominium proposal. And so that began my work with Karina Gould and the Confederated Villages of Lashan. You know, first we had to churn out letters about the environmental impact report. We got 1,800 letters against the project. Uh, there were five letters in favor. Um, we forced the developers to go into consultation with Karina and other Ohlone leaders. And at the end, they basically dropped the project and backed out. And uh, then the new affordable housing law known as SB 35 came into effect, which basically says that if you propose a development that is more than 50% affordable housing, you can get a immediate building permit from a city. So the developers, the owners of the land changed course. They sent to Berkeley a proposal for a new project that was still going to dig down 10 feet into the ground and disrupt every cultural artifact and burial that might be there. And they demanded a permit from Berkeley within 90 days. Berkeley denied the permit based on the fact that there is a historic structure there. There's a value, cultural value in that site. And so the owners sued Berkeley and challenged this uh, denial of their SB 35 permit application. So the tribe is involved in the West Berkeley Shell Mound um, for five years now. The first year we were able to win the battle um, by public pressure. Um, the developer was forced to meet with our tribe. Our tribe declined anything that they offered us because whatever they offered us was going to destroy the site. They offered us, we'll buy you another piece of land in exchange. And I was like, our spirituality is place-based. You can't just pick up and have your spiritual place somewhere else. It's like where we're supposed to pray is where we're supposed to pray. Um, so that didn't work. And then they offered to give us a little section of it to create a park and uh, stuff. And as long as we allowed them to dig into the ground um, for the rest of the way. And they would give us the entire um, title of the land in 99 years. But what good would that do if they dug out the entire sacred site? So we said no. Uh, they changed it using that new law, and that new law was flawed because it took out CEQA, which is the California Environmental Quality Act, which makes, which forces developers to consult with native tribes about, so that new law took that piece out. And um, so we went to Senator Weiner's office and Senator uh, Feinstein's, uh, Skinner's office, and said, look, it's flawed. We need to be able to consult. This is going to destroy the site. And basically was told that it needed to go to court before it could be changed. These are our lawmakers. Um, uh, Wiener acted like as if he didn't even know that Indians existed in the Bay Area. And so um, 
So we made sure he knew that was different. <laughs> and so the city of Berkeley and Karina's Confederated Villages of Lejeune partnered in, a, in to defend the site in a lawsuit. And that went on for several years. We won at the local level. We had a really good decision from a judge at the at the superior court level here in, in Alameda County. He ruled that there is a historic structure there underground, even if it has been damaged above ground. And then the California Court of Appeal overturned that victory, basically saying we need affordable housing in California, that trumps everything. And so we tried to get the California Supreme Court to take the case, but just a few weeks ago, they refused to take the case. So we're in a situation now where the city of Berkeley soon may be forced to issue some kind of a development or zoning permit. It's not a building permit yet. And so she sued and we won in the lower courts and we celebrated a huge victory. And then two months later they appealed and we were back in court again. And um, just recently we were in court um, a few months ago and um, while we were in court, the owner of the land put up a six-foot fence with barbed wire around the entire site. And uh, an act of violence, knowing that hundreds of people from all over the world have been there in the last five years and have prayed there. People have come and brought ceremony there, um, Tibetan people, people from Hawaii, West Papua, um, Leaders from the Amazon have prayed there with us. Um, we have had people from all, all over the world come there and pray, um, create beautiful artwork. Um, young people, old people, all coming together on that site um, to remember the ancestors, but to also remember their own and their own humanity. And so while we were in court, literally, this, this fence went up. And so it was an act of violence, um, a colonial act of violence, uh, to think that you can own someone's sacred place. What I've often heard from Native peoples is that relationship also comes with responsibility. Responsibility to ancestral lands and sacred places mean many different things, but on a fundamental level, it is an ethic of care. It means ensuring that the land is healthy, that it remains a place where the living people and future generations can sing, dance, pray, and root themselves in the legacy of their people. In a profound way, it also invites all of us to consider our relationship to the land, to the history of colonization, and to relationships of respect and reciprocity with indigenous peoples. It offers a model for what we, what we might create together to create a world beyond empire. You're listening to Challenging Colonialism in California. Future episodes will explore dam removals, Indian boarding schools, the troubled history of archaeology, and more. Thanks for listening, and please share this information widely. Challenging Colonialism in California is produced by myself, Martin Rizzo Martinez, a historian, and Daniel Stonebloom, a public school administrator, and is produced with support from the California State Parks Foundation. It is not our intention to further colonize the narrative or to misrepresent stories that are not our own. 
It is our intention to create an educational resource where everyone can hear the perspectives of Indigenous peoples in their own words. Please leave your feedback, suggestions, reviews, ideas for future episodes, and more at the episode page, where you can find additional information and resources to learn more and get involved.